Hi, welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. Each week on this podcast, we give you simple strategies to improve your body, mind, and well-being. Hi, I'm Anique Jabin, Executive Director of News and Partnerships at WebMD. We recently published a blog post about a topic that can be sensitive to talk about, but one that we know really resonates with our audience. The piece is called The Very Real Grief of Miscarriage, and I'm talking now with the author, psychologist Dr. Susan O'Grady. You write that, that psychologists sometimes call miscarriage the silent or invisible loss. Why aren't we more comfortable talking about the loss of a pregnancy? Well, I think it's it's complex. Um, we call it the silent or invisible loss because the baby can't be seen. Um, the baby is not tangible at that point. And so people will often think that, well, you can just try again and move on. There'll be another opportunity. But so many emotions occur on all levels of our being, physical, emotional, social, spiritual, and in our primary relationship, as well as our larger family circle. So miscarriage touches all aspects of our sense of who we are, making it very distinctive from other kinds of grief. And because this mourning continues for a long time after the miscarriage, but it also continues after a person begins to maybe try again because each time they get a period in the month, they feel like another mini death and that increases that emotional pain. So that's one of the reasons that people have a hard time understanding it and talking about it. And do you think that people misunderstand just how devastating it could be because of, of the fact that it's silent or invisible? Or, or is there like a taboo in talking about miscarriages? You know, I think it varies from person to person and, and within different cultures. But um, one of the problems that we have is that many people feel shame about the loss. Like, did I cause the miscarriage by something I did, like a strenuous walk or carrying a too heavy load of groceries? Thoughts can feel like a runaway train with painful ruminations. And people then feel like they should have done something to prevent the loss or that their body has betrayed them or I might not ha ever have a family that I want so much. So, so because of that shame, people will feel like they don't want to talk about it. Um, and also because miscarriage can reactivate old family scripts like I'm incompetent or unworthy or I don't deserve this. And those painful beliefs associated with pregnancy loss can also make us avoid being with people and talking with people. And many of my clients who've had miscarriages, they stop even going to events where they'll have to face people, especially pregnant friends and families with young children. So, so that's another reason that people will keep to themselves and not talk about it. Well, yeah, you speak about some of the, the, the patients that you see or the women that you see who, who have um, been touched by a miscarriage. What advice would you give them? I think it's important to talk about your loss. Um, take time for self-care, especially keeping in mind the hormonal and physical changes that you're going through. 
as time passes, find pleasurable activities where you can feel competent and consider creating a grief ritual. When my husband and I lost our baby at 16 weeks for our healing, we we found a soothing grief ritual, and that's something that you can do too. We took several trips to the coast and walked along the shore picking up shells and stones. And when we found a shell that seemed to speak of our lost daughter, we brought it home and placed it on a shelf where it still sits today, these many years later. And that was our grief ritual. But like most pain and loss, we really needed to talk about it and to talk with people who had either been through it or people that we knew could empathize. And although it's very hard in the aftermath of a pregnancy loss, for me, time helped for sure. So you, you can also talk to your friends and family about your feelings and ask them to take your feelings seriously and even consider psychotherapy as a safe place where you can get validation and empathy. And then if you can't find support, there are support groups out there uh, Share Pregnancy and Infant Loss Support, Inc. They have online and um, a website that will help with coping with miscarriage. And that, that kind of thing can be really strengthening afterwards. And, and if you know someone who, who has a miscarriage, what is the best way that you can show your support um, what should you say, or, or maybe more importantly, are there things you should not say? Yes, well, being with someone who's suffering is hard, and it's uncomfortable. And our instinctive urge is to jump in and make it all better because of our own discomfort. And we don't want to see the people we love hurt. So our impulse is good to help and console. But timing is really important here. Remember that miscarriage is a real grief. It's a real loss. And there are many levels to that grief. So you might just listen and be with their pain. It's easy to give advice and problem solve, but that's not what they need. You don't want to see someone in pain, but it doesn't help to say things like, you can try again, or it happened for a reason. And if you are met with anger or irritation by your well-meaning intentions, see if you can give the person space to have their reaction, even irritability, and then back up again. But don't withdraw. Staying with pain is hard. And then if you haven't experienced pregnancy loss, don't say that you understand. It's impossible to know how someone feels, but given time and space, you can begin to hear how they feel, just being with them and listen and offer help. If there's tangible things you can do, ask them. It's important to not give advice or try to fix it. Give them time to talk and cry and understand that they might need to skip some events during times when they're really hurting, even family gatherings. Don't tell them to get over it and move on as if the loss is insignificant. And don't say that it happened for a reason ever. 
or that you can always try again. Because those statements really minimize and they feel dismissive. And is there anything else you'd want people to know, whether it's um, a woman who is just found out about a miscarriage or the families that are supporting the mother? Sure. Just know that grief is one of the hardest emotions to carry. We have defense mechanisms to help us with this. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes the defensives will cause us to actually close down. So pay attention to what you need and what will help most. Sometimes we have to titrate strong emotions, like when you start a medicine for the first time. You start with small doses and build up to a full dose. And it can be that way with grief. You may feel it in different ways and different amplitudes, and that's okay. It's even good. And then it takes a lot of courage to try again. And it takes bravery to take a huge risk and you'll understandably feel nervous and anxious. But going through suffering gives us a strength and resilience that we can carry with us through the rest of our lives. And when you have healed a little bit, maybe opening the door to hope again. Because hope, like grief, can also be titrated. Dr. O'Grady, thank you for talking openly about such an emotional topic. You're very welcome. Hi, I'm Allison West, an editor here at WebMD, and today we're talking about that little distraction device we have with us 24-7, our phones. I'm here with WebMD medical editor, Dr. Neha Pathak. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So our phones do lots of great things. They make our lives more convenient and we feel more connected, but they are so very hard to put down. A new study shows that we're slower and more accident prone when we text and walk, and you can strain your muscles if you look down at your phone too much, you get text neck. That blue light from the screen, because we all look at it before bed, the blue light disrupts our sleep. And sometimes when we're spending time with people in real life, our phones are a little too present. They get in the way. Why have they become so irresistible and so distracting in our everyday lives? It's not just a machine that we use to call people. Right. We can check pictures and message people at all hours of the day. So it really is meant to be something that is irresistible. In terms of why it's so distracting, it's because it has so many different things that it can do. And we know that as human beings, our brain is not very good at multitasking. Right. Yet we love them so much. And some people even say they're addicted to their phones. And is that addiction a real thing? There is no real medical diagnosis mm -hmm. as such, but in the absence of feeling really well connected to people around you, in the absence of feeling like you're in control of your day yes. and perhaps your life, I think that when that happens, this device can take over a lot of your time. A lot of people say, I wish I had more time to do the things that I want to do. And then when you track how much time you're spending on the phone, you realize, wow, that was four, five, six hours of time right. that I didn't have control over. We're both parents. You know, we've, we've seen and it, perhaps at times we've given our phones or, or tablets to, you know, to our kids. But what, what are better ways to do that? How can you, how can you balance that with your, with your children? I know in my house, 
my husband is the guy with the phone. So I make an effort to put my phone away when I'm there with them because I think they don't need to see both of us, you know, but how do parents, what tips do you have for parents to help balance that out? Creating an agreed upon phone free time, Mm -hmm. like a phone ban Mm -hmm. is something that would probably be very healthy for families. Because again, we're thinking this is time that we want to spend deepening connections Mm -hmm. with our spouses, our partners, our loved ones and our children. And if we know that this device is going to be distracting to us, it might be a good idea to have time where nobody has access to phones. And it's actually much easier to kind of note when your partner is doing it. So I was really good when I was like, ah, it's you. You're the one (laughs) who has the phone all the time. And then he stopped. He put it away and he does not bring it into the room when we're putting the kids to sleep. And now I notice I'm the one who has the phone because something may come up and I might need it in an emergency. But... (laughs) I think that that, we've realized that those emergencies rarely happen. So really, for us, it's creating a space without the phone, and it's really trying to model that behavior for the kids so that they don't see that someone from the morning, the moment they wake up, is holding their phone. It's almost like an extension of their arm to the point that they are going to sleep. There's a fog that some of us fall into, whether maybe we're listening to a podcast or we're looking for music or we're doing something on our phones during our everyday activities. How do we cut through that fog and and get more plugged into real life? What we like to talk about in a lot of different places is mindfulness Mm -hmm. for exercise and for eating and for pain management. And this is another area of being very mindful of what you're doing. Setting timers on your phone. So Mm -hmm. that's a way of using the technology to your advantage. Mm -hmm. So before you start saying, I am only going to allow myself 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever your personal time limit is Mm -hmm. and setting a timer on your phone, having a stopping rule, Mm -hmm. having a timer, and then replacing that bad habit with a good habit. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to stop something if you don't have something else that you're going to do to replace it. You probably notice that when you're trying to break bad habits. So for me, I have been reading a lot more. I joined a book club. Oh, wow. And so if I do reach for my phone, I have the book (laughs) on my phone. So it's time that I have set aside to read my book. Right. That's a great idea. What else are they doing to our bodies, not just our minds? A lot of what is happening is repetitive stress injuries on our body, having our neck in a certain position as we're texting or doing various things on our phone, our th- overusing our thumbs and mm-hmm. our fingers. So a lot of these repetitive injuries can be due to the time we spend on the phone. You want to make sure that when you are doing it, sitting comfortably so that you're not putting your body in a position that is going to be stressful and cause a strain. For all of these conditions, you really want to have time away from that activity. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Here's our tweak of the week. Put your phone down when you're eating. It could help you lose weight. One in three Americans now say they can't sit down to a meal without their favorite gadget. But researchers found that when you don't pay attention during a meal, you tend to eat more. They call it distracted eating. On the other hand, if you're into the meal and maybe a nice conversation with the people around you, you'll eat less. And it isn't just cell phones that are taking our mind off food. It's TVs, work, even a good book. So 
Tune out, turn off, and chow down. That's all we have for this week. Thanks for joining us. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out WebMD on social media: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. We have some great information and the latest in health news too. Hope everybody has a great week. Thank you.